I'm going to give you a message today that's uh, connected to the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting about this is if you're here, maybe you've heard this term already here at Mardella. This is a church plant. Does anybody even know what that means? Y'all do. Okay, yes. People that have planted a church are like, of course we know what a plant is. But, you know, the rest of the world doesn't know. And a lot of people will probably say, church plant, is that like you go there and they give you a plant for visiting? Like, they don't know. Like, they want to know. So a church plant has a direct connection to the kingdom of God. And that's one of the reasons why we plant new churches is we have this desire to see the kingdom of God grow. Now, what's interesting about the kingdom of God is you're going to find that it's mentioned more in the New Testament than a lot of other things. In fact, the kingdom of God is mentioned 53 times in the New Testament. 53 times. Now, that's significant. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's mentioned 32 times just in the book of Matthew. So when you start to break that down and you look at Jesus' words alone, he talked more about the kingdom than any other topic. And what's interesting to me is here Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time, but if you've been to church, visited churches, frequented churches, looked at other churches, how many times have you heard the topic of the kingdom of God preached on? Now that's convicting to us as, I think, leaders as the church, because I think sometimes if you've been in church long enough, we shift somehow from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of someone else, whether it's the kingdom of the pastor, or it's the kingdom of a denomination, or it's the kingdom of a certain movement, you know, and then what happens is, or it's our own little kingdom. Have you ever been to one of those churches where there's just a few families that are in control? And they've got their little kingdom going on. Y'all have been to some of them looking at your face. You're like, yep, I've been there, done that, yep. But why does God talk so much about the kingdom of God? I think one of the reasons he talks about it is he knows that the local church is supposed to be being birthed new all the time. And the only way that the local church gets birthed new all the time is if their focus is on the kingdom and not on their little corner of it. So I'm going to walk through this a little bit with you, and hopefully I'll help you understand a little bit more about the kingdom, not only from the church's perspective, but your personal perspective. And what we want to do is we're going to look at the book of Acts. Now, if you've had a chance to take me to a class here called Growing with Grace, it's the second class we do, it's about how to read the Bible. If you have that class, I'm going to mention some things about good Bible reading today that might help you in your Bible reading. It'll be kind of, uh, you'll be reacquainted with it. So there's something called the law of firsts. Does anybody know what that means in Scripture? The first time something's ever mentioned, it's important. Then there's the law of lasts. You know what that one is? You can figure that one out, right? It's the last time something's mentioned, okay? When you can find the law of a first and the law of a last inside of one book, there's something really significant being stated. And if the same person does it, it makes it even more important. So in the book of Acts, which is, anybody know who wrote the book of Acts? Oh, everybody wants to guess Paul, but it wasn't Paul. In fact, this, I think you used this as a trivia question one time. This person wrote more about the New Testament, not more books. So Luke wrote more in the New Testament than Paul did, just fewer books. And he wrote this. This was a continuation of his gospel. He wanted people to know about the church and its birth. And in this particular book, in the book of Acts, he begins talking about the kingdom of God. You'll see in a second. And he ends talking about the kingdom of God. And to your point, he is referencing his favorite apostle, Paul. So go there with me, Acts 1-3. Let's look at it together. After his suffering, he showed himself to, to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now he's talking about Jesus. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. I want you all to say that with me. Kingdom of God. Yeah. Now we go to the very end of the book. Acts 28, 
30 through 31. So you can go there in your Bible. We'll have a reference read behind me. For two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He's in house arrest. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. And he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning of the book of Acts, at the very end of the book of Acts, it's almost like the author, Luke, wanted us to make sure we didn't miss the fact that this is about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's so interesting. Most people don't even stop to say, what is it? Jesus talks about it. Jesus references it. He does parables about it. And it's all throughout the New Testament. Yet in the church, how often do we even stop to go, what's the kingdom of God? What does it look like? What's it taste like? What's it smell like? And why is it different than some of the churches I've gone to? Why is there such a split on this? And by the way, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to attend a church, I want to attend a church that's actually part of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Not the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of the pastor, not the kingdom of, I want to attend a church that's about the kingdom of God. So let me define the kingdom for you based on some very simple principles out of these two verses. The first thing is, it's where Jesus is king. That might sound overly simplified. It's simple to say, hard to embrace, and even harder to submit yourself to. Why is that? Because people have an opinion about Jesus. Almost every religious movement in the world has an opinion about who Jesus is. Let me give you some of those opinions. Some people say that Jesus was a great teacher. And by the way, he was a good teacher. He was a great teacher. But there's a problem with that. If he's only a teacher, he's not going to be king. What about those that say he was a good prophet? Some people say he's a good prophet. So now let's look at these. So a teacher, Doug could give you a whole dissertation, all right? They teach something in a creative and good way that we can grab hold of and understand. But a prophet does something different than a teacher, right? A prophet reveals, unveils something that's hidden from the heart of God to God's people. That's what a prophet is. So a teacher teaches you something that all of us can get a hold of, all of us can grab onto, all of us can understand. They can probably teach you about sin, teach you what sin is, teach you what sin looks like, teach you what goodness looks like. But the prophet starts to unveil something, to reveal something that only comes from hidden knowledge from God's heart. And some people say Jesus was a great prophet. The, pro- the problem with both of these understandings is they do not correctly put into context the greatest problem that we face in the kingdom of God. The greatest problem that you and I and everyone that's ever pursued the kingdom of God is actually dealing with is a really teeny little word that messes up all of our lives. Sin. It's sin. And sin, if you're unfamiliar with the word, and I'm not not trying to patronize you, we we just had a lady in Laurel that we got to help in her relationship, and she just started that relationship, coming into a relationship with Jesus, and her biggest stumbling block was she didn't know what sin was. She said, I heard it preached on, heard it taught on, heard you mention it. I couldn't figure out what my sin was. And I'm like, well, let me help you. It's not that hard. So we just started going down the Ten Commandments, right? And as we went down the Ten, I'm like, guilty, guilty, guilty. By the way, I was guilty too, so we were both doing it together. And and we realized that sin, so let me go through that with you because I think defining sin then helps you understand why we need a king and a kingdom. So let's just go through. What, What were the Ten Commandments do you remember, either from the courthouse or from maybe your school growing up or Sunday school? Give me a Ten Commandment. Come on. Don't kill. Now, that one, you think, I'm in. I, I, I'm not done that. Oh, not, 
not with people, okay? Animals, different issue, right? Hunting, that's not murder, right? <laughs> but I think I'm good on that one. Then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, and he says, if you've actually looked at your brother or sister in anger or hatred, you've murdered them in your heart. Dag, he got me. I'm guilty. I'm guilty, especially when I go up 13 and deal with certain people that can't drive. Guilty. This is why we shouldn't have weapons in the car, right? Road rage is a real thing, okay? Guilty. All right, so what's another one? Give me another one. So a lot of us are going to be guilty of that one. What's that one? Love your neighbor, right? This one says don't bear false testimony against your neighbor, right? So don't lie about your neighbor. Y'all have never gossiped about your neighbor, have you? Never. Okay, you're guilty again. Okay, so let's uh, give me another one. Oh, that one's nasty. Now we go to the very first one, right? We hit the top of the list. Uh, have no other gods before me. That, that's an idolatry issue, right? So, so if it's a choice between going to church to honor God or going to watch the Vikings with a ticket to the Super Bowl, which one are you picking, Doug? What? Yeah. <laughs> have no other, no idols. Nothing ahead of me. I have first place in your life in every way. That's what that, that commandment means. And what's interesting is you start going down these commandments, you realize, Man, I'm guilty of a lot of these. Like, and it wasn't like I went out of my way to be a sinner. It's just built in. If you don't believe me, have a kid, right? Gwyneth, gotcha. She's like, got me. Have a kid. You don't have to teach your kid this lie. You don't have to teach your kid to sin. Ask any of the teachers or former principals in here, right? You don't have to teach them to do that. Somehow it's just in there like the Prego sauce, right? It's just in there. Now, here's the problem. Come back to the sin issue. That's the biggest issue we face as humanity. If I'm a teacher, I can teach you about sin. I can even teach you to restrain yourself from sin. I can teach you the historical narrative and context around sin. But I can't deal with your sin. If I'm a prophet, I can reveal to you some of the hidden issues that have happened throughout the history of Israel and the church and things are happening in the Middle East and show you things you're like wow where did that come from it came from the heart of God from the spirit of God revealed in a way you're like wow I can now kind of understand why they want to kill one another over in Israel and I can see prophetically how that sin is playing out but I've not dealt with the sin I've only revealed it to you in a new way this is why Jesus when I say has to be king it's a unique problem what's the opposite of sin that one's tricky, isn't it? It's not goodness, because we got some good people in the world, right? But what's the opposite of sin? Anybody know? Obedience. Obedience is getting there. Grace. God's will. What's God's will lived out? There's a word for that. Holiness. The opposite of sin is holiness. It's like you ever been around someone that you would say is a holier than thou? That's a false holiness, but that's giving you an idea of what I'm talking about. That they walk so rightly with God, so in alignment with God, that you're like, man, I feel when I'm around that person sometimes distant because they're, I feel like they're closer to God. My wife's dealing with that with the family right now. Has somebody that's just kind of wayward in the family. You ever had someone that they're kind of doing their own thing and destroying their life, and when she gets around them and they have an honest conversation just about life, she can feel the tension between the two of them. And it's a spiritual tension because she's trying to walk in alignment. This person's walking in the completely opposite direction. And the difference is one walking towards sin and one walking toward holiness. In Jesus, 
you have holiness. You ever notice whenever he hangs out with people, the first thing, when they finally realize who he really is, what happens? They're like, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful person. They recognize his holiness, and they're like, whoa, that's so different than me. I don't know what to do with you. And that's why when you look at Jesus, you see the perfect character of God lived out in holiness. And because of that, this is why he's king. Not because he's a teacher, not because he's a prophet, but he lived out perfectly all the law. How could he, as a mere man, live out the perfect law, never sinning in thought and deed? The things we just went through with the ten, Jesus never sinned on one of them. Not even in thought or deed. How could he do that? Unless there's something unique about him that's unique about this kingdom. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over to Philippians 2 and just mark it. Maybe you want to read this later. There's a part of Philippians 2 that shows you why this is true of Jesus. Philippians 2 says in uh, verses 5 through 6, just I'll, I'll read it for you. Listen to this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Attitude. Holiness, okay? Who being in very nature God. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or in older translations, robbery with God. What makes Jesus so unique and what makes the king and the kingdom is the understanding that Jesus is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a teacher, he's not just another Gandhi giving us good moral instruction. He's God in the flesh. That's how he walks perfectly. That's how he walked in holiness. And when people get around him, they see it. Not only people when he was on earth, but people today who pursue him by faith. They get close to him and they go, oh my gosh, you're unique. When I first came to know Jesus, I was 17 years old. And I didn't know all this stuff, okay? I'm still learning, still growing like you hope. But I knew there was something so absolutely unique about Jesus that I was drawn to him, pulled toward him in a mysterious way. And I remember when um, I finally realized my sin, because I had plenty of them by the age of 17. Oh, okay. Don't go to Sharptown and ask. Okay, one of our deacons did that, came back surprised and shocked. And he's like, you did have a past life. I'm like, yep, sure did. Yep, that's called sin. And so I was dealing with my own sin in my life, couldn't deal with it. Life was getting overwhelming. And for the first time was introduced, actually, what you were talking about today, Larry, out of Matthew 24, that the ends were co- end time was coming. And I realized I was not in a place ready for Jesus to come back and needed to do something different in my life. I got on my knees and I confessed him as king. I didn't even know what it fully meant. Asked him to come into my life and I could sense the holiness and the realness of the living God. Like, I could touch him even though he wasn't there. I could sense him that powerfully. That's the living relationship that God wants. And when that happens... He becomes king. He takes over everything in your life. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. So the question I have for you this morning is just a very simple one. Is he your king? Is he your king? Or is he still just merely a teacher or a prophet or an interesting person to you? It's different when he goes from a person of interest to being my personal king. When I say he's my personal king, I'm ushered into the kingdom. My behavior changes. My desires change. My thought life changes. I actually have him now, when I do sin, I feel guilt about it. 
feel convicted about it. Has that happened for you? Have you given your life to him? That's the first thing. That's the first thing. He must be king. The second thing that you see is that Jesus' followers, like Jesus, sacrifice. They're very sacrificial, just like Jesus was sacrificial. I love it. It says in Acts 1-3, after his suffering is when he starts to talk about this stuff. He's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The reason he's the ultimate sacrifice is because, again, he's the ultimate king. He is God in the flesh. He's eternal. You see, the problem with a man or a woman or anybody that says they're going to help you with sin is they can only help you with, with their sin. They might be able to point yours out, but they can't deal with sin. Jesus deals with sin eternally because he's eternal. After that sacrifice, look at what it says. He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, there's some evidence. If you're not familiar with this passage, let's talk about Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. He was crucified, put in a tomb with no oxygen. And three days later, it comes back to life. We call that Easter. After sacrificially dealing with our sin. And don't miss this, church. What's he talk about? He gives, y'all get bored of sermons? He gave one sermon for 40 days. 40 days he talked about the same topic every day. And that topic was the kingdom of God. This was such a sacrifice he did. And his church follows him into the sacrifice. His followers do the same. And because of that, because of the early church, because of the sacrifices they were making, people were like, I want that life because it looks so radically different than the other people around me. Recently, uh, we were going through a campaign at the church, and we asked our people to make a sacrificial offering and gift. Now, you've probably heard that at churches before. Okay, and then when I usually hear it, I'm like, oh, they're asking for money. Yep, that's what churches do. But what you really need to understand is in different moments of your life and time, the reason that we're asked to sacrifice has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with time, and it has nothing to do with our talent. Because God doesn't need either, either one of those. What you really need is to make space for God to move in your life. And these three areas, as Americans especially, we're greedy with. Have you noticed? I'm pretty greedy with my time. I'm pretty greedy with my gifting. And a lot of us are pretty daggone greedy with our money. And so when we say, I'm going to prayerfully and thoughtfully set aside something sacrificially to give to God, all of a sudden I give God space to move into my kingdom because I'm taking the things that I think I'm king of and I'm letting him be king of for a little while. This happened for us recently. So we were thinking about what do we give because we, we're not only about you, we're not extremely wealthy people. And so I was thinking about what do I give to this campaign that we were doing? And so my wife and I prayed independently then came back together and God gave us the answer. And sometimes you're excited about it and then you realize what he's asked you to give and you're like, no, I'm not so excited about it, okay? So for us, here's what happened. We had saved for a whole year. I don't know if you've ever done this. We're, we're Ramsey people, which means we don't want to be in debt. So we try to buy everything with cash. So we had saved for a year, envelope kind of system, and we saved up to put a deck on the back of our house. This was my wife's dream. Now, this is a decent dream because we have, um, if you come out to our house in Hebron, uh, we've had 15 copperheads that I've killed in the backyard since we lived there. So my wife's like, I'd like to walk out, especially at night, and not have to worry about getting bit by a copperhead snake. I'm like, that's a worthy dream. I'm with you, okay? I think we'll save for this. So we saved up, and we had some uh, really uh, gifted people like Dustin, who knew construction, said, you need to save between 1500 and 2000 bucks." which for some of you are like, that's nothing. For us, that's a lot. So we saved and saved and saved, put it away, got it there. And then, of course, we're ready now to build Susan's deck. And then we pray, and God says, I want the deck. 
And I'm like, why in the heck would God want a deck? What's he going to do with it? We're the ones going to sit on the back of it and enjoy it, right? He's in heaven. So we prayed separately, and God said, I want the deck. And so we said, okay, we'll give it to you. And I'll never forget, it's about four weeks ago, we stuck the check into the offering plate. So this is for God's campaign. This is so that God can replenish God's fund and do something pretty cool with that. Put it in there. I'm like, okay, it's all right, babe. A deck will still come. I still know when and how. So we'll save again. Maybe it'll take us another year, but we'll get there. I put it in there, and then a buddy of mine, or hanging out in one of our favorite hangout places, okay, who's a construction guy, says, well, what do you need for your deck? How big is it going to be? I said, we were just doing a 9 by 10 deck. He's like, well, I just stripped off a whole bunch of composite boards off a dude's deck. You can have them. We'll barter for them. I'm like, okay. So there's the top of his deck. So then I go to a guy who's a friend of mine over in the in, uh, Seaford area, and I said, hey, I need uh, this many 2x6s, this many 2x10s, this many 4x4s to build the deck. I'm just trying to build my budget to figure out how much it's going to cost. And he says, okay. I said, here's what I need. He says, send me your address. I send him my address. My wife calls me a day, uh, like two, uh, two hours later. I said, did you buy that wood? Because we can't afford it. And I'm like, no, I didn't buy the wood. And she goes, well, it's here. So I called him back up. I said, what's up? He said, hey, happy Pastor Appreciation Month, man. We donated the wood to you. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're watching these miracles happen all around us in different ways. And then two other guys said, hey, we'll help you build it. And they built it in a day. And it wasn't fancy. It wasn't anything big. But it was a way that we sacrificed in a way to give God space. That's just on the financial side. But you do this all the time in different ways. With your time. With your talent. Worship team. When you set aside that time and you say, I'm giving this not just doing this out of obligation, but I'm doing it because I love God and I'm a part of his kingdom and he's going to use what I'm doing. You create space for God. One of the things that always blows me away is when I see people that say they're too busy to serve in the church. It's okay. I get it because I'm busy like you. What I'm sad by is that you're missing the opportunity to create a space for God to surprise you and do miracles. This is how God works in miraculous ways all the time in my life. This is what's part to be a part of the kingdom of God. He does things that you could never orchestrate, you could never think of, or you could never do if you create these spaces for him. And the third thing is this, and then I'm going to finish it up, is that the kingdom of God is always centered completely on the gospel. The kingdom of God is centered on the gospel. The gospel, if you're unfamiliar with this term, is a simple term that means good news. The problem with the gospel in most American lives and most churches is it's the secondary news, not the primary news. It's not the thing that's at center of all things. So one of the things I love to do when we go out to dinner, my wife knows when I'm doing it, and she cringes almost as soon as I start to do it because she's an introvert like Doug, and I'm an extrovert, and that's just the way we're made, that's the way we're built, is I love that when we go out, if we get a new waitress. In fact, I actually intentionally go to different restaurants to meet new people. And I, I know Susan hates this. And as soon as they come over, I'll say, hey, can you tell me about your spiritual journey? And they're like, what? And I'm like, I think we've all got a spiritual journey. <laughs> can you just tell me about yours? And sometimes we'll build a relationship for a while. And if they're uncomfortable, I'll go back and I'll look for them intentionally and try to get seated there. And I'll keep, what? It's, it's true. And I'll do that, actually. And, and people are like, how do you remember their names? Maybe I put them all on my phone. So I put their name down. I put information. I know it's like stalking. I know. But, but this is the kingdom of God. I want them to know Jesus. And so I put their information down, and we have conversations all the time. And I want them to understand that there's this great good news that God's done in my life. It's central to my life. It's not only central to my eating out life. It's central to my sports life. It's central to my school life. It's central to my church life. 
it's central to my community life, there should be nothing that you're doing if you're a part of the kingdom of God that's not centered around the good news of what Jesus has done in your life. Whether you're a teacher, preacher, you know, you work construction, manufacturing, doesn't matter. Everything should center around the gospel. That's how you know the kingdom that's there. When you plant a church, there's a little subtle problem that happens. And I want to show you why churches drift in a way. And I want to do it with a really weird illustration. Um, so who are not introverts? I'll try not to pick on anybody else but Doug today because he already said I'm in trouble. Come on up, Chris. I want to do an illustration. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah. So that's okay. So stand here for a second. We're going to do an illustration. I need another. Yeah, come on, Larry. You're not an introvert. Come on. I know you're not. I knew, and, I, and I know you're sort of not. So come on up. Come on, come on. Okay, come on. Good. So, so I just want to show you something that happens. This is something Dustin and I talk about. So I want you to stand here in the middle. Is that okay? And then um, what I want you to do, Greg, is come down here. Okay? And I want to show you an illustration that I learned a while back. Okay? Um, that I think helps us to understand from the church planting perspective how the um, sometimes the kingdom is not the center because the gospel is not the center. So watch. When I tap you on your shoulder, I want you to real loud for your church family. I want you to say, plant a church. We're going to practice. You ready? Plant a church. Good job. Okay. And, and I know your heart. So when I tap you on the shoulder, I want you real loud for the church family to say, make disciples. Make disciples. Okay. Okay. You, what you said, it almost sounded like a fruit. But it's okay. Make disciples. Okay. And then when I tap you on the shoulder, this is so perfect for you. I can't believe it worked out this way. It's good. I want you to say, share the gospel with the city. Share the gospel with the city. But with conviction. Share the gospel with the city. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so here's what happens typically in the church of America without us really realizing it happens. We get people together because we're excited to. So we can make disciples and then share the gospel with the city. Does anybody see the problem with this issue? It's backwards because we created it as men and not of God. Here's what God wants to do. God wants to share the gospel with the city so that he can make disciples and then they can plant a church. Do you see the difference? So thank you guys. Give me a hand. Yes. This is the problem when we don't have the gospel centered to what we're doing. You can actually, and I want you to see this, you can actually start a gathering like this. This is a great gathering today. And we can think that the purpose of our gathering together is just to gather so that we can have Sunday service. Okay? That's planting a service, not a church. And then we can think we're going to get together in groups, and then when we get together in groups, we're going to talk and fellowship and share our lives together. And discipleship, making people help them understand who Jesus is, happens by the way, we've, so far we've covered teaching and prophecy, but you have to have the gospel as the most central dynamic to everything that you're doing as a church family if you're going to be a real church, a biblical church, a kingdom church. Why is this so important? I know Carissa's heart, so this will, this, she's probably like chomping at the bit. Is the, what you do with the church, you the people or the church, is you penetrate this city and this entire area with the gospel with the good news of how Jesus has changed your life. You penetrate the fire department, other churches. You're, you know, I, one of the things I do, and Adrian thinks I'm a lunatic for doing this, but I, go, I, go, I buy all my coffee now from one place. Where do you think I buy my coffee now, Adrian? Mardella Hardware Store. Why? 
because they have black rifle coffee, right? No, that's one reason, but why? Because I walk in there, and when I walk in there, same reason you go there, I'm building relationships with people in this community so that the gospel might be shared right here. This is how the gospel gets shared. And this is you doing it. And when this happens, the kingdom begins to grow. Then people are like, well, now that I know Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Well, come be a part of our family. Come hang out with us. Share in the community with us. Come to a Bible study. And then, by the way, hopefully you'll enjoy be enjoying yourself so much as you're part of the community that now you want to come and celebrate on Sundays all that God's been doing. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why we planted Mardella. We didn't plant Mardella so there could be one more church on the Eastern Shore. We planted because the gospel was not being shared in this region. And we believed that God was going to gather people just like this, who would then contextualize that good news and share it with their friends and their family and their loved ones because they want them to know the same King Jesus. How does that happen? It happens in a very simple way. We all have to admit our sin, believe on the true person of who Jesus is, and commit our lives to him fully. When that happens, the kingdom of God flourishes. So what I want to do, I want to pray with you briefly, because if you've never done that, that's where your journey begins. If you've struggled recently with your faith, renewing your faith is where the kingdom of God is reinvigorated in your life. And then for some of you, you just need to be reminded like me about the good news and how to share it. All I have to do to share the good news is talk about my aspect of being a sinner, my belief wholly on what Jesus did, and the commitment of my life to him and how he is flourishing and enriching my life. If that's what you want to do, then let's pray this morning because that's why you're here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for each and every person. They're not here by mistake but by design. Your kingdom amazes us. Father, all around us in the world, we see the world at war with one another, tearing each other down, hatred. But within your kingdom, we see a genuine love for one another. We see help that comes from one another. We see people that sacrifice their lives for those that have been hurt or wounded all around us in the places we live. And because of that, we want to be a part of your kingdom. To be a part of your kingdom, Lord, we want to first admit that we're sinners. Would you take a moment right now, let God search your heart, continue in a, an attitude of prayer. And wherever he shows you that you sin, where you've fallen short, would you confess that back to him now? Father, we've been real and transparent about our sin. But in this moment, we put our trust and our hope, our belief in the person of Christ. That Jesus died personally for us when he died on the cross. That he covers over our sin and all the wrongs in our life. Not because he was a good prophet. Not because he was a good teacher. 
but because he showed the fullness of who you are in bodily form. We put our hope in him because only God made flesh could deal with the greatness of the sin of humankind. Father, thank you for him dying. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your all on the cross. The best we know how, Lord, in this moment, we commit our life to you. Fresh, sometimes for the first time for some. And we put our hope only in you to save our lives and the lives of the people we love most. And all God's people said, Amen.